Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends Story Podcast, in association with The Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the friend team, along with some special guests, will dive into our archives to find a story to read and all sit down for a wee chat about it. So make yourself a cuppa, pull up a chair and come join us. For our final episode of season two, we're reading the first two chapters of A Maid of the Isles by Annie S. Swan, first published in 1923 and new to the People's Friends classic collection paperback books. We started this season with Annie S. Swan, so it seemed only right to go full circle and end with her as well to celebrate the new book. Now you might be wondering who this new voice is, and that's because I'm new and super excited to be taking up the podcast mantle from Ian. I'm Jackie, the digital content editor for The People's Friend, and your new host for this episode and future seasons. But for now, a familiar voice that you'll have heard before reading the extract is friend editor Angela Gilchrist. Over to Angela. A Maid of the Isles by Annie S. Swan. Chapter 1. Peter Matheson, the Pertree doctor, could not settle in his house on a black night in November. He had had a long enough day in the saddle and in the gig, and his body was weary, but something gripped his spirit, a sense of the unexpected, possibly the dread. He could not eat his supper, and when Kate Nicholson, his housekeeper, came in to clear the table, she beheld it aghast. What for have you not eaten your good supper, doctor? Is there anything the matter with the meat at all? The doctor met her flashing hawk-like eyes with a half-smile in his own. Nothing at all, Kate. Only I'm off it. Get me a cup of strong coffee in half an hour's time. I've got some writing to do. It will keep you awake, doctor. Don't be taking it. And you never off the road for three nights. It's sleep you're needing, and coffee is not so good for it as the other kind of nightcap. Wished woman, and not be leading me in the way I should not go. I will not go out tonight, Kate, if the very spirit of Blavin himself should come to fetch me. Kate did not even smile. She had heard the threat before and seen it confounded. She was jealous of the well-being of this man, who was to her all the bairns she had not borne or mothered. She was a sky woman and had never been out of the island. That the doctor was an importation from one of the outer isles made no difference to her. She was bound to him by ties of gratitude and service. He was a short, sturdily built man with an open face and a good square forehead, a wide, genial mouth which could smile merrily, yet set with unwavering firmness. A man to be trusted, the portree doctor and he was trusted far and near. He had the lovely hands of a healer and his tender heart, so that all he touched were comforted even in the swelling of Jordan. The wind seems to be rising, Kate, but we have no cause to grumble. We'll have to pay for it, sure, muttered Kate, as she swept the untasted food onto the tray, half tilted against the table. At the moment, there was a peal at the bell, followed by a loud knock. She shot a glance of triumph at him. What'll you be saying now, Doctor? Like as not, they'll be seeking you north or south and that you'll be going too in spite of your bra words. Most likely, it'll only be Rory MacLeod for his wife's medicine, though I told him I would bring it tomorrow. Go and see. If it's Rory, bring him in and give him a bite. Poor man, he's having an anxious time with Morag. 
Kate left her half-piled tree on the table and marched out. In a minute, she was back with a letter in her hand. It's Hamish McQueen from the inn at Sleachan, and he's a man in a hurry. There can't be any visitors at the inn just now, Kate, said the doctor, and took the letter. Kate watched him as he broke the large purple seal on the flap and saw his face change and his brows knit. Then he turned to her curtly. If he can leave his horse, Kate, bring him in and give him something to eat while I get my things together. What things? And where would you be going at this time of night and you needing your bed? She asked with the privileged persistence of an old servant and friend. Never mind. You do as you're bid, Kate, was all he answered, then passed by her to go to the surgery for his things. A blast through the half-open door urged him towards it. Outside, the wind ruffled his hair and there was a roar of waters in the bay, as if the spirit of the storm was up and doing. What horse have you, Hamish? he asked briefly. Is it a fresh one? For the wind will be in our faces as we ride up, and there's no time to spare. It is a fresh beast, doctor, answered the man. They'll be waiting for you at the inn with another. It seems the horses at Corryvreck are wabbit. They've been twice to Kailakin in 24 hours, and there's only the two of them. This cryptic remark still further deepened the mystery in the doctor's mind. At least, that's what they were saying, added Hamish, with the characteristic caution of the sky man, incapable of haste either in thought, word or deed. He had been bidden fly like the wind, but had, nevertheless, taken his own time. For in sky, time is not the same as in other places. There is always tomorrow, and sometimes tomorrow is better than today. The doctor was not a questioning man. Further, he could see that the stout cob had plenty of fire in him yet and that it would not be safe to leave him untended at the door. He therefore called to Kate to take out a bowl of hot soup to McQueen and then went to collect his own stuff. Various bags and cases were in the wide low cupboard against the wall in the bare little consulting room. His eye swept them. He lifted two, then, moved by some strange impulse, put one back and took another one, well known about the glens and crofts where he pursued his calling. In about ten minutes' time, well wrapped up and followed by Kate Nicholson's good wishes, tempered by dismal forebodings, he leaped to his seat in the Sleachin gig and the horse's head was turned. The southwest wind met them, soft and sweet, but gusty, driving the massed clouds across the sky clearing a track for the moon's face so that she might add her magic touch to a scene of unimagined beauty. It was full moon at the waning turn. Broad and white was the light shed on the lovely landlocked bay, the tossing waters beyond with the long low line of Rassay in the middle distance. Their road led them across the moors, following the windings of the Varigal River, fed by a hundred gleaming mountain torrents. In front lay the massed battalions of the hills, their mystic and towering crests coming ever nearer and nearer until they seemed to shut them in. Peter Matheson knew every rood and pole of that road, but not every stone, for they were ever-changing. There were few landmarks and no houses, only a long stretch of desolate beauty with which a man cannot commune without some hurt or advantage to himself. There are some to whom these lonely fastnesses are the abomination of desolation, but Peter Matheson loved them. 
They had helped him at a time when his own life and all his hopes had been in ruins at his feet. Therefore he gave them a son's love and did not shrink from their wildest mood. We'll get to Sleachan fair, Hamish, but the storm is brewing, he remarked from the comfortable depths of his wrap, which Kate had knitted for him from wool spun by her own folk in a cottage in the Sconser, Crofting Township. Aye, maybe it is too, answered Hamish in his non-committal voice. They will be saying at the inn that a lady has come to Corryvreck and that there is sore trouble there. To this the doctor made no response, having no wish to make the trouble to which he was hastening the subject of common talk. Any folk at the inn just now, he asked by way of turning the subject. Nain, there was a bit body, but he left yesterday on the Broadford post gig. Will you be staying in the night, whatever, or will I be to bring you back? I don't know, Hamish, the doctor answered. Then silence fell again, deep and unbroken, until they breasted the last slope and descended to the level track before the inn door. A light shone broadly from an uncurtained window, and another trap with two horses champing their bits awaited them. The doctor sprang from his seat and approached it. Corryvreck, waiting for me, he asked briefly. The man nodded. The doctor sprang up to his place and was gone even as the landlord came out to bid him good evening and inquire regarding his movements for the night. The man on the box seat of the wagonette was a stranger to Matheson and he asked him no questions. They crossed the bridge and turning upon the Broadford Road, mounted high, leaving the gleaming waters of Sleach and Loch below them. The doctor's mind was full of wonder as to why they had sent for him instead of for the Broadford doctor, who was not only nearer, but presumably known to them all. He had not got over this questioning when they turned off from the high road and began to cover a wide, desolate stretch of moorland, little better than a cart track. Peter Matheson knew the track well. There were few, indeed, of the side tracks or shortcuts unknown to him in that part of the island. There was another road to Corryvreck, a straight road from Kailakin and Broadford, but this was the road, apparently, the man had been bidden take. It meant a clear saving of several miles. You came over this, I expect, to get to Sleachan. How about the bogs? There has been a lot of rain. I got there, was the cryptic answer. They're not so bad at all. And anyway, it is a good night. For the light, I mean. A body or a horse can see where he is going. If the rain keeps off, muttered Peter Matheson, feeling as he spoke the sting of the first drops on his cheek. But they pass with incredible swiftness these wild blashes of mountain rain. In ten minutes the sky's face was clear as crystal and the moon's white light casting weird and mystical shadows on the encircling hills. Never had they seemed more mysterious, more awful, the very spirit of secrecy and of silence, of old, unhappy, far-off things brooding upon them. Matheson stared in front of him, conscious of their nearness, of their strange, almost human appeal, and all the while his mind was in a turmoil regarding the business on which he had been fetched all the way from Portree. Twenty minutes across the bumpy track brought them to the main road again, along which they were came to a low gateway cut sheer into a mass of low-growing, sturdy pines, which closed upon an avenue so thickly that they made it pitch dark. The horses, however, appeared to know their way and brought them in a few minutes' time, without mishap, to the door of a great house hung on a rocky pinnacle from which Matheson knew the sea could be seen. 
Indeed, it laved the foundations of the house, which was a landmark to seafaring and fisher folk for miles. A few lights twinkled in the upper windows. The lower ones seemed to be heavily curtained. But almost before the horses stopped, the low, iron-studded door was thrown wide and a man-servant, old, white-haired and rather tottery, appeared to bid them welcome. The next moment, Peter Matheson, gripping his bags in both hands, stepped inside the house and the door was shut. The man-servant, whose eyes had not lost all their clearness, watched the doctor's face as he helped him off with his heavy wraps. Come this way, sir, he said then, and Matheson, with a swift glance at the high, bare hall with its dark oaken staircase polished by the feet of many generations, followed his guide. He was brought to a long, low room, badly lighted save at the fireplace, where a solitary woman's figure in a trailing black frock stood with clasped hands, waiting. Even from the doorway, Peter Matheson was struck by the majesty and the anguish on her face. He had never seen aught like it on a human face before. Dr Matheson, ma'am, said the manservant with an anxious tremor in his voice, then closed the door, leaving Matheson to advance. I am here, madam, he said briefly. She advanced a step and regarded him keenly with a long, searching glance. Then her features seemed to relax, as if she had found some comfort or reassurance in the sturdy figure, the square, strong face, and the general look of the portrait doctor. I am obliged to you for coming. The matter is urgent. Nay, more, it is tragic. Will you sit down while I explain? Matheson shook his head. Something told him it was no moment for sitting, that there was urgency in the hour. I have been sitting two good hours coming from Portree. I am ready for whatever service is required. She clasped her hands nervously and a fierce red spot burned upon her pallid cheek. Her handsome mouth lost its proud curve and seemed to tremble before the strength and purpose of the man on whose mercy she had decided to throw herself and what she held dear. I made no mistake in sending for you. I was bidden, by whom it matters not. I think it was my own heart. I have that to tell you which will take a moment. You prefer to stand, so do I. There can be no rest when the heart is breaking, when all one's being is on the rack. Chapter 2 He bowed gravely, still utterly at sea. Then, quite suddenly, she began to talk, haltingly at first, but speech gathered momentum as she proceeded, till the words came like one of the mountain torrents which rush impetuously down the hillsides in winter. Matheson listened like a man entranced, filled with horror and consternation, for a moment almost goaded to turn and flee. As if gauging the depth of his inmost thought, she suddenly took a step forward and laid a light but compelling hand on his arm. It is the honour of my house I am laying upon you, Dr Matheson. More I cannot tell you. Is it enough? Will you undertake for me and mine this night, so that the curse causeless which has come upon us may at least, may at least, here she paused as if at a loss for words, may at least not destroy us. I am ready, answered Matheson simply, and before God I will do what one man can to help Corrie Vreck in this hour of need. A great, deep sigh that was a sob shook her, so that her control seemed likely to desert her. 
Then come upstairs now. There is no one in the house save you and McEwen, the old butler who admitted you, and Yufan, his wife. You are the fourth person to be admitted to the secret shame of Corryvreck. It lies with you to save us. Now come. He followed her out of the room into the badly lighted hall, up the wide, dark staircase to the first landing, along a corridor to a door at the further end, which opened and they passed in. Then fell a strange silence upon the old house, a silence as of the grave. About two of the morning, an hour when the lights are low and the lamp of life burns but dimly, they came down the wide, bare stairs, these two whom swift tragedy had brought so near in the house of Corryvreck. When they entered the long living room, the fire still burned on the hearth, but the air was chill. Matheson moved swiftly forward and, taking the long wrought iron poker from its stand, drew the embers together. An odd smile twisted his lips as he turned to her with a leaping flame. They say you should be seven years in a man's house before you touch his fire, ma'am, but this is not as other nights. Her face showed wan and grey in the half-light, and as if suddenly spent, she dropped heavily into a chair. Oh, she said, and there was a moan in her voice while her hand crept to her heart, as if she felt its throbbing or its pain. Matheson, seeing how it was with her, looked round irresolutely. There was a bell pull, but of what used to pull it, seeing the only one who could answer it was elsewhere. A half-open door in the panelling a few feet away beckoned him, and walking deliberately to it, he threw it open and was relieved to behold there an array of bottles and glasses and even a tin biscuit box, a secret hoard evidently for those who knew where to find it. He filled a glass hastily, not too particular as to what brand of spirit he was putting in it, and carrying the biscuit tin in the other hand, approached the limp figure in the high tapestried chair. He had a dominating way with him and few words. Nevertheless, the woman about whom he was now anxious obediently put the glass to her lips and drained it, and even essayed to crumble a few bits of the proffered biscuit. The spirit immediately worked its transient spell, and she sat up, new vigour in her looks. Thank you, she said in a low voice. It was well done. One forgets that strength is exhaustible, but it has been a terrible night. Now listen to me, madam, began Matheson steadily, standing by the table a few feet away from her. I am listening, she said, when he made pause. There is no one else to listen to for me in the wide earth. You hold me and mine in the hollow of your hand. Hardly, but we'll let it pass. I understand that what has happened in this house tonight must, for the sake of many besides you and your poor child, be kept secret. If it can, if it can, she moaned. But walls have ears and the birds of the air carry messages. Now, can I be sure even that you... But when her eyes met his, she faltered and would have asked his pardon. I made no mistake in sending for you. They told me. Who told you? I have forgotten. They said you were the friend of all trouble and sent none empty away. It is true. See, you have never asked my name, nor who is to pay you for what you have done this night. Look you, money should not be so much as named between us but the service will not be forgotten. Do you hear? I am hearing, he answered, 
and the faintest suspicion of a smile touched for a moment his grave lips. I said to you when you first came that it was the honour of a great house that was involved, but it is more. It is the happiness, the very existence of some dearer to me than life. Look you, if her father knew what had happened here tonight, he would kill her with his own hand. Of that, I am as sure as I sit here. No, no, said Matheson quietly. We say things like that, but do not believe them, because we are in the grip of forces stronger than ourselves. We would rather think and believe that that poor child upstairs has been more sinned against than sinning. Two large, slow tears, wrung from a heart's pure and utter desolation, welled in her eyes and rolled down her worn cheeks. Ah, you are wonderful. Where do you gather such wisdom of the heart? Does it belong to the wizardry of your profession demonstrated so wonderfully to me tonight? I'm a plain man, face to face with life without its trappings. I see men and women as they are, and I'm continually astounded by their nobility, Peter Matheson answered. But it is growing late, or rather early, he added, with a glance at the great honest face of the chiming clock set high on the stone mantel shelf. I understand the situation, I think, and I want no further information. I can help you further by placing the child for you in a home where he will be cared for, I and mothered, and where no questions will be asked concerning his birth or parentage. She stared at him as if he were a deliverer and saviour. You, you would do this for a woman you have never seen before? It was my hope. It was my hope, she added, and her voice faltered that other help might be forthcoming upstairs. You understand? That kind of help is forbidden. Moreover, it is a crime, madam, Peter Matheson answered bluntly. My business is to save and preserve life, not to destroy it. I can take the bairn with me now, but certain precautions will have to be taken. Where is the man who drove me here tonight? Gone to his home, I expect but he can be got again. He lives not far away. He is neither needed nor wanted. If you have a horse fit to cover the 15 miles between this and Portree, I will drive him myself and you can send the man to my stables for the turnout tomorrow. Yes, yes. And you will take the, the child with you? I will. But what will you do with him? Your wife? I have no wife, only a housekeeper who knows when and how to hold her tongue. But we will not keep the foundling in Portree. I can do better for him than that. Find a foster mother who will take him to her breast and heart. He will be cared for like her own. But how wonderful that there should be such people in the world, she cried, trembling very much. Then you agree. I will go and get the trap if your old servant can be trusted and will show me the way, while you wrap the mite in blankets. He is a sturdy one and the night ride won't hurt him. The winds of Blavin and Marsco and Glamig will chant his lullaby, said Peter Matheson, for the drama and the poetry of the adventure gripped him. He left her there and stepped out into the darkness, companioned by the frail old servant who spoke no word to betray that he sensed the night's tragedy. When about three of the morning, in a fitful patch of moonshine, Peter Matheson drove the strange horse round from the stable yard to the front door of Corryvreck, there were no witnesses to what happened save the woman who bore the hapt bundle in her arms, 
her tall, graceful figure tense with strain and excitement, her face wan and drawn in the pale moonlight. Matheson saw her in the hall and stepped within, where they stood a brief second. If you will come outside, madam, and after I get to my seat will hand me the child, I will place him tenderly. She bent her head and, clasping the unconscious bundle in her arms, followed him into the open. Matheson climbed to his seat and then, stooping, stretched out his hands to take the burden. It was a striking scene at that moment. A shrouding mist was swept from the moon's face and the light shone out clear, white and wonderful. It touched the woman's bare head where the wind ruffled her hair, showing up the fineness of her features and the poignancy of her expression. She seemed to hesitate and then to tremble, but Matheson reminded her there was no time to lose. She folded back the blanket then and, moved by some impulse stronger than fear or shame or death, pressed her lips to the pink rose leaf of the baby's face. May God forgive me for this night's work. But he will be cared for. You do promise me, don't you, doctor? I do. And I will see you tomorrow, madam. Or rather today, a few hours later. Goodbye. He gathered up the child, laid it softly on the broad seat by his side, making the folds of the blankets taut and secure with a surer touch than any woman's, then stretched out his hand. Goodbye for a few hours. Don't fret. All will be well. She reached up her hand, clinging to his, as if loath to let go the friendly human touch. Whatever her rank or station, she was not just then, but a trembling woman whose heart misgave her. Matheson understood it all, as if it had been written large letters for his eyes to read. Keep up your heart, madam. We shall talk it over later in the day. Meanwhile, I am sure this is the right thing to do. You are sure... Absolutely, after what you have told me, and I give you my word of honour he will be cared for if I have to care for him myself. It was a kind of a vow. Neither guessed how nobly it was to be fulfilled in days to come. Alone there in the solemn silence of the new day, with naught but the majesty of the hills about them and God's eye over all, they felt themselves near the heart of things. Their hands met, but no further word passed. The impatient horse leaped forward and at the turn of the avenue, Matheson looked back to see the tragic figure standing bareheaded on the step. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. We recently asked some members of The Oddfellows to call in and let us know what qualities they look for in a friend and we're delighted to be able to share some of their answers. Hi! I'm Jane, an Oddfellows member from Alton. For me, a friend is someone who makes me smile and makes me feel better about myself. Hi, this is Denise, an Oddfellows member from the Wirral. A friend is, is somebody who's got a lovely soft shoulder to cry on and who shares in your sorrow or happiness. Hello, my name is Keith and I'm a member of the Richmond, Surrey branch of the Oddfellows. A friend is one who will give you a hug during difficult times. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, The Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today 
on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. Ah, Ian, sometimes it's like I can still hear his voice. Um, They're my friends now, sorry. Today I'm joined by editor Angela. Hello. Our production editor Judy. Hi. And archivist Barry. Hello. And today we have a very special episode, something a bit different to end off season two, because, well, for the first time, we're all in the same room, which is unnerving and weird and strange. <laughs> but and really, that's just really Barry. Nice. Yeah. Once I take my hazmat suit off, fine. Yeah, I didn't mean to look at Barry as I said that, but I did. And we're also, instead of looking at a story from our archive, we're looking at one of our amazing classics collection books, our brand new one from Annie Swan, A Maid of the Isles, which is a full novel taken from a serial that was originally in 1923. Um, you'll have just heard Angela going through the first two chapters. We thought that would be a really good little tease extract of it. And yeah, we're going to talk about the extract, try not to give too much away about the book itself. Spoil- no spoilers here. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll try our best. Um, first impressions of the first two chapters. What did everyone think? Well, I thought it was beautifully read. (laughs) (laughs) And a real tongue twister to read too. (laughs) Which word did you get stuck on Uh, most? uh, Oh, well, couldn't possibly say. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I have an excuse not to be able to pronounce the Gaelic words, but I feel like you guys should really know better. (laughs) No. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I absolutely loved it. Um, I started reading it in preparation and I'm like a quarter way through the book and I couldn't put it down. So I'm very excited to see where it goes. But we don't, we're not going to give away where it goes. I feel like it was a really good extract to use because the two chapters are actually almost kind of separate from the rest of the story because I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there's a bit of a time jump. So it sets out what this scandal is and then but you don't know what the repercussions of it are yet you're gonna have to carry on reading to find out how did you find reading it Angela it's really dramatic isn't it I mean it sets up such a such a scene and uh, builds up to that revelation of the scandal at the end of chapter two so I thought it was really really atmospheric in the way it was written it was beautifully written too although in a style that perhaps is a little bit old-fashioned to to modern ears but um, what I really enjoyed about this first um, part of the book is the sky setting Mm because that's an island that I'm quite familiar with I like to go there um, visit there most years and uh, I think certainly in this opening part of the book sky is almost a character in itself it's so beautifully portrayed I think she did that really really well yeah, and she keeps that up right yeah. the way through the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm really glad you said that because that's exactly what I thought and what I was going to say is that Sky feels like its own character, mm-hmm. the way she describes all the different hills as watching. And there was one line in particular, it was like a battalion of, mm-hmm. of the hills or something as if they were watching and witnessing the scandal take place as they were kind of sneaking mm-hmm. about at night and things. So I really enjoyed the imagery. This idea of Sky being a character was really there from this well, before the start. Like a lot of old um, 
Well, you probably do this today, but they mm -hmm. trailed well in advance a lot of the NES One stories back in the day because she was the star writer. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the impact of this story later on. Mm. But uh, right before this, the week before it was launched, there was a, a, a couple of trailers, as you'd expect. But there was a standalone piece by Annie S1 called What I Saw in Sky. Mm. So I'm just going to read you um, oh the, first, the first paragraph, because I think it's quite telling. I have travelled over a good bit of the world, and on occasion waxed eloquent over some of the wonders I have seen but I shall never forgive myself for having lived so long in the world without seeing sky. I hear and now own that I am ashamed. But the loss has been an incomparable loss because I have only a remnant of life left to make good my neglect and ignorance of one of the most beautiful places in the world. Very nice. Oh, that's lovely. I've, yeah, that's yeah. I feel like... And again, this isn't a spoiler, but the character of Margaret McKinnon, who is one of the main characters later on in the book, has that ridiculous love of sky. Like, she's absolutely obsessed with it. And I feel like that was Annie S. Swan's own love of sky that she has just, like, used Margaret as a medium for. And you definitely hear that in that extract as well. Definitely. The other, the other aspect that really comes across very strongly, as well as it being a character, is this idea of it being quite this um, almost ethereal, mm -hmm. mysterious brooding, foreboding, mm -hmm. moody place. And again, I've got another lovely excerpt, if I can take this out. The prevailing sensation of an, ex an excursion of this kind is awe, tinged with a sharp sense of the littleness of man. For here, one is face to face with the vast, devastating forces of nature against which man is helpless. <laughs> oh, so she, she is dramatic. <laughs> so she really <laughs> set this up. Um, <laughs> So she has to deliver now, doesn't she? Yeah, <laughs> but she does deliver because she absolutely gets the atmosphere of being there and those mountains all around you. And it doesn't matter where you drive on sky, you can see that cooling ridge that mm -hmm. that hovers over um, her setting. So I I really liked um, a few bits and pieces that, that she said early on as well. So the doctor, when, when Kate is saying to him, you know, you mustn't go out on a night like this, he says... I will not go out, Kate, if the very spirit of Blavin himself should come to fetch me. And that spirit of Blavin, which is one of the Coolin Ridge Mountains, it's almost a character too, isn't it? It's, it? This mountain has a life of its own and it's watching over the scene that unfolds below it. It's, it's absolutely fantastic stuff. Yeah. And there's, there's another small bit that I liked where it's um, about the man who's come to collect the doctor that night. And uh, Annie writes, he had been bidden fly like the wind, but had nevertheless taken his own time. For in sky, time is not the same as in other places. There is always tomorrow, and sometimes tomorrow is better than today. And is that sky is not the same as other yeah. places, which is really lovely and, and okay. true, I think. I had much. both of those underlined yes. as well. <laughs> the, the, that the tomorrow line, I just thought was such a good line. And then I obviously I had I had to Google um, Blavin because mm -hmm. I wanted to know what it was. Um, and I thought I thought the spirit of Blavin. I thought originally it was talking about a ghost. And I was like, oh, are we going to get some like folklore mm -hmm. or like sky um, folk tales? But um, apparently it means blue mountain. In, mm -hmm. in the Coolins, so mm -hmm. there's a little mm -hmm. yeah. tidbit. Learn something new. Yeah. <laughs> you say, you're saying that about the folklore, but there's quite a bit of that yes. within it as well. They talk about the fairies and mm -hmm. the, the, yes. little people. the little people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is very up my street. So mm -hmm. I was surprised to find a little bit of that. I, I really enjoyed that as well. 
Well, it has to be said, she also sort of foreshadows a little bit about the, the characters within the story and that what Angela's touching on there again, this idea that nobody in Sky will be hurried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can find this. Um, oh, yeah. I was struck by the serious expression on the faces of the people one met on the roads and elsewhere. Smiles do not spring readily in Sky. <laughs> Possibly life is a serious business there. The handicap of climate severe. <laughs> so, oh. so she's really I think she's put a lot of thought into yeah. th- this yeah. wasn't written as she was driving around Sky or whatever she no, was doing This no. is uh, she's thought about how, the, how best to trail this story, how to build this atmosphere well in advance yeah. and I think she did an excellent job actually yeah, she, has. she did, I think the whole the whole weather and the blackness of that night and the, the journey of the Doctor through the night is, is really really vivid isn't it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you get a real sense of drama and foreboding and and things like that and I always really appreciate it when you can get a really clear picture from a story because I quite struggle to visualize you know how people have different ways of visualizing in their head and whether you get like a clear picture or a quite fuzzy one I have quite a fuzzy one I find it struggle to visualize things so when you get a bit of writing where you paint a really vivid picture I always really appreciate it I really got like a clear spooky image of Sneaking through the night and the <laughs> yeah. horses and, and I mean, the it's, drama. It's quite interesting because Jackie, being a bit younger than some of us, <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> it's and it was written so long ago, and it's as Angela said, it's maybe not contemporary language, and it's very dramatic and very sort of over the top. You might even say, but it's also extremely accessible. Mm-hmm. It's yep. you know, it's a story that sort of sticks out from everything else even though you know the writing's wonderful but it's the characters and the story itself that mm. that keep you going through it yeah i really like the way she used quite a lot of scots words in it as well mm-hmm. so um i think blashes was one that i didn't know before but um that's a heavy splash apparently in old oh. scots <laughs> um so it was blashes of rain that were coming down and it's just so wonderfully mm-hmm. atmospheric and uh, i think Kate has has a good line in in Scots dialect as well in places, doesn't she? With her, she's telling people they look wabbit and yeah, there's quite a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, so I really like that, and I like the way she tried to convey the particular Sky accent as well. So a lot of double S's in yeah, the, the yeah. dialogue to to give that sibilant Which noise. I actually had to ask Andrew if it was a typo. How <laughs> dare you suggest <laughs> I would let a typo through? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure. Yeah, because I, I couldn't tell you what a Sky accent is off the top of my head. So, yeah, I wasn't wasn't too sure. <laughs> what I've enjoyed so far is listening to Jackie trying not to give too much of this away. And what I realised was that um, in advance of this, I'd actually gone through the, the magazine itself and the editors at the time had no such qualms. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't really care. I mean, I'm not going to... Well, I can read this out and you can blank it out. So uh, <laughs> I, we trust Jackie or, or Chris to do this. Um, so let me just, the trailer I, I read from you already, but um, in that particular week when it was launched, it said, today I am sure you will find a vast amount of enjoyment in the opening instalment of A Maid of the Isles. Annie S. Swan, you, you will see, has carefully arranged her chapters so as to give you the history of Angus MacLeod down to that ecstatic moment when he takes Margaret in his arms. I was like, well, you've really... <laughs> Shot the bolt there. I mean, come on. Why would you do that? We wouldn't do that nowadays. I know. I mean, I can't believe you let me do it now. Um, 
<laughs> but do you think, what, do you think there was anything to be gained from saying that? I know. And, and the thing was, the, the whole point of it was, when I was like going through it, you really didn't know if they were going to end no. up together. Mm. You, you really didn't know because nowadays... You know, with a, a modern story, you'd be like, ah, yeah, 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 we all know where this is going, but you really didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, I did actually read to the end of this to find out whether they did, which is <laughs> yeah. saying something. Well, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, they all no, died. Too late. Yeah. Not finished yet. <laughs> yeah, because in the we've got the illustrations of the original print in front of us, and in the first part of the serial, I'm assuming it doesn't get to Angus or Margaret yet, but the illustration is of Angus and Margaret. <laughs> so I'm like, what? I found that, it's a beautiful illustration. I found that a bit weird because I was like, oh, these people aren't, aren't in this story yet. Yeah, but um, that's something we certainly wouldn't do these days. No. Because illustration has to reflect what's going on in yeah. the story. Yeah. But this was the very early days of illustration within the People's Friends. So this is 1920s, I think. 1923. So, so it would have been quite a quite an undertaking to have got an illustration for this serial at all. So they were probably getting their money's worth out of it by using it in as many um, places as they possibly could. Do you remember what to what extent Sky features in these illustrations? Because to me, I'd, my recollection is is really just of the people. And when you think of this story and how much we've already discussed, mm-hmm. the sky is such a huge mm-hmm. part of this. I don't remember seeing Blavin <laughs> anywhere, but I could be wrong. There, in, there are some hills in the background of that first just one. Just generic it's hills. In the background yes. scenery. I suppose um, they couldn't just Google a ref in those yeah. days, could they? How lazy. I know. And then one of them's indoors. The first one, for the first part of the serial, you know, where it is this, the first two chapters where they're going through the night and he's been mysteriously called to a house in the middle of the night. It would have been cool to have a very dark kind of moonlit illustration, but I imagine that would have been probably quite hard to do. I've seen it done. Mm-hmm. I've seen it done. <laughs> I'm not calling, I'm not calling your predecessors lazy, but I mean, I've seen it done. <laughs> I suppose you already kind of, one of my questions I think you've already kind of covered, Barry, is did Annie S1 spend a lot of time on Sky? Is this, is this something that pops up in other stories? Or does she kind of do all over Scotland? Well, I don't know how much I can do say without giving away <laughs> the end of this. <laughs> no. um, Sky des- definitely appears in another story mm-hmm. okay. after this one. <laughs> and that much I'll say. Um, it doesn't say how long she stayed, and I have no idea whether she ever went back. I mean, she's a, a writer of fiction. She would never have gone in the first place. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, she, she seems to have fallen in love with this place. There was somewhere in this, which she calls it, a paradise on earth. Mm-hmm. So one would imagine she'll have gone back at some point. That is a term that is used in the book mm-hmm. also. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, it is. is. Yeah. Um, also, I, I can't not mention this, even though it is a slight spoiler, but I was really excited because a Yorkshire lad comes up in it later <laughs> as, like, as like a potential, you know, rival, love rival or something. And I was like, pick the Yorkshire lad. <laughs> but it's him that he, he gets a tour of Sky and he's like, oh, he's like paradise. So that's interesting. I mean, she was a really well-traveled woman. So, you know, she she did spend time in Sky, but she's, she was all over the, the world. Really, She spent a lot of time in America as well, lived mm. in England for many, many years of her life. So... Um, yeah, I think she probably did um, return to Sky more than once, I would suggest. I think the, the depth of description in this story would suggest quite a a long acquaintance with the place and not just a fleeting yeah. visit. Yeah, I would agree. She seems to know it 
intimately. Yeah. The detail, the geographical detail alone. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. think yeah. you could probably got some of that from an atlas, but it spoke yeah. of a knowledge yeah. and of roads travelled, I would argue. Yeah. And also the terrain as well, because these were the days before they had proper metalled roads to any degree. There would be no bridge to sky in those days, so it would all be ferry. So um, I think definitely it's it's intimate knowledge with the terrain as well as just a fleeting visit to the, and the also locations. And also of the people. Yes, of the people as well, definitely. How hard would it have been to get to Skye at that time, do you think? What would it have been like in the 1920s? I tried to look it up and I couldn't really get much information. There were some really cool photographs of like streets and sky at the time and the wee carts and stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I wonder how... Train Different and then car yeah. and then ferry, I would think. Yeah, yeah, because the ferry would have gone from Kyle of Lochalsh and you can, the train goes right to Kyle of Lochalsh. So it would just have been long, I think. It would have mm -hmm. taken a long time. Um, and especially getting around on the island because I think you would be dependent on the transport that was there. So there would be no, there would be no train there, for example. And it would be a lot of horse and cart, I would have thought. A lot of Kelpies and unicorns. As well. <laughs> <laughs> and dragons. <laughs> yeah. I say, actually, that is a plot point later on. Because she sent a letter to get picked up. But the post, obviously, was a bit delayed. So she, her, her car never arrived. And that's like a whole plot point. So, yeah. yeah. I can't imagine. My anxiety would be through the roof. <laughs> Turn up on an island with no way of getting to your destination. <laughs> But it's great for storytelling. Yes. Yeah. It gives you so much more potential than just everybody could communicate instantly. Exactly. Yeah. Just hope over the bridge and, and you know, I just rang in a 10 minutes is hardly the same. Yeah. It There's, does lose a mystique, doesn't it? They lose their moment because she just jumped in a taxi and stuff. <laughs> Ubered my way around Sky. It was all right. Not exactly paradise on earth, but it was fine. Four, four out of five. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I probably should have done this earlier, but I'll quickly try summarize what's kind of happened in the in the first two chapters so we have the poetry doctor who's been mysteriously summoned at night to a house um where a woman is asking him for help and that if the truth came out it would be a horrible scandal for their family but it seems like quite a well-off family um and then he takes away a baby in the middle of the night and gives it to a different family and then the time jump I think it's like 16 years and then another few years and it's that baby as an adult and his life and everything. So yes, there is a scandal and secrets to unfold in Sky. Yeah, I don't because we just we just kind of leave it with him driving away from the, the big house, yes. don't we? Mm -hmm. Yes. I like the fact she let us fill in the blanks ourselves because mm -hmm. yeah. her writing style is quite wordy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is somebody I think who's used to being paid by the word, <laughs> but it comes across as a bit wordy, but then you suddenly get this 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 gap. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, there's a lot said in that gap, and that, that in itself is a skill, I would mm -hmm. argue. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I had to go back a few times to check if I hadn't missed something because I was like, am I supposed to know? <laughs> who this person is or am I supposed to know it's all very euphemistic but no it's, she reveals little little bits at a time and that's part of the part of the drama mm -hmm. so I'll just read the blurb on the back of the book so we ha so people have a better idea of what's maybe coming in the rest of the story during a stormy night on the Isle of Skye Dr. Peter Masson responds to an emergency call and becomes embroiled in a scandal that must be kept secret Years later, the free-spirited and rebellious Margaret McKinnon strikes up an unusual friendship with Angus MacLeod of the Sheeling, much to the annoyance of Margaret's mother, Lady McKinnon. 
Margaret and Angus are set adrift from each other, but a chance meeting in adulthood transforms their friendship into something more. Is Margaret and Angus's relationship fated, or will schemes and secrets tear them apart? So, yes, I suppose it's not. It wasn't a spoiler from from the nineteen twenties editor to to allude to a romance, um, <laughs> but yeah, we don't know what the secrets and schemes could be just yet. Mm. Does yeah. anyone have any? I know you've read it, Judy, so you can't give too much away. <laughs> but does anyone have any guesses as to where it might be going? Sky. <laughs> <laughs> firm, firm guess there. Um, I, we've had a conversation uh, during the course of reading Between the Lines, and this is something that's gone across two seasons, where we've kind of felt, actually, we know where these stories are going. Mm. And it became a bit of a trope, so much so that I think it was much commented on. But I have to say, I was not 100% sure even having read the, the 1923 spoiler, I wasn't 100% sure how this was going to end. Um, and I think that's... I think, I think the thing is, everybody knows where it's going, but it's how it gets there. Mm-hmm. And is it in fact going to end the way you think ah. that it is? Because right up to the end, there's something that might prevent it ending the way you expect <laughs> so it's just whether it does just what way it goes and even right to the last gasp when you think they've got over that you know there's there's always something else so yeah Aww. i don't th- i think i think the general direction of the book will not be a mystery to anybody but um it's just how she handles that and and how they they end up at the very the very finish of the story well funnily enough i think the editor at the time again tapped into this so um, the story itself ran from the 3rd of March 1923 and up to the 16th of June, I think it was. And in that last day, there was a bit from the editor. Today you come with much regret, I know, to the end of a maid of the Isles, but you will all feel that the tale of Angus and Margaret has not been fully told and the significance of the last paragraph will not have been lost. <laughs> Annie S. Swan felt that she had a good deal more to tell about the lovers. So the good news had better come out now. Annie S. Swan is already at work on a sequel to A Maid of the Isles. The new story, or rather extension of the old story, will begin in the autumn when you've got your holidays over and are settling down with the fireside again. So that is something very pleasant to look forward to. <laughs> oh, they knew so what they were doing. I, they, they, they definitely just. did, yeah. Very <laughs> much so. brilliant. I won't give you the the title of the sequel because that will give away so much. <laughs> they just didn't care, these people, yeah. frankly. I was just about to ask what it was, but I won't do that. Oh, it's <laughs> probably a perfect um, volume for the next classics collection, Absolutely. isn't it? Wow. Wow. <laughs> that will be no hardship. <laughs> but you can see, can't you, that, that she is a master storyteller, mm-hmm. Annie, and rightly was treasured by the people's friend, by the readers and by the editor as well. So... Um, I think the editor in the 1920s would definitely have been David Pay um, Jr., who was um, worked closely with Annie. I think I'm right in saying Barry, didn't he? They would have worked closely, mm-hmm. but her main point of contact around that time was a George Watson, who George was Watson. a um, what was he a managing editor, or at least he he seemed to do a lot of the correspondence yes, that I've seen. Because we've got quite a lot of letters, haven't we? We do, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And we should just say, of course, it's not just Annie; it's Annie S. One CBE mm-hmm. because That's she right. was. I think she had her 
no, maybe not by this point, actually. I think that came a little bit later. Yeah, it was a bit later after her, her war efforts, I think, but um, CBE for her contribution to literature. Yeah, yep. which was significant. Yes. One of these things I, I was keen to bring up, of course, was, yeah. was just uh, the legacy uh, mm-hmm. of Annie S on CBE, uh, which is a, a strange one, given yeah. how popular she was. I mean, 200-plus novels... Uh, I have no idea how many short stories, and not just across the People's Friend, mm-hmm. across, well, our entire company uh, and others, um, and published independently as well. She was just a writing machine. Yeah, she was. And we had a researcher come up a few years ago, and Gillian Neal, um, she came up and had a look around some of our archives because she wanted to know more about Annie. She was writing a, a paper on her. And she came up with this uh, really interesting line about Annie Swan's legacy and she went on to say about writing and uh, in the le- in literature in the late 19th early 20th century um that she felt that annie swan falls in the middle of a spectrum where she doesn't she's so well known not completely forgotten but not completely remembered and i think that's very that's an odd place to inhabit for mm-hmm. any writer you'd think yeah. given just how popular she was and she clearly in your stuff you don't have a 60-year career um by accident, mm-hmm. you cannot, you can't fudge it for that length of time. <laughs> uh, she clearly knew what she was doing, as we've just, you know, discovered. Yeah. You know, she clearly had something else in mind. She obviously, I think, she obviously had a, a sequel plan further down the line. She knew what she was doing. She yeah. knew how to grab her readers, and I just never understood why people haven't latched onto no. this and done more with it. I mean, she was a professional writer. She wasn't. She wasn't a woman who was just writing as a hobby, as might have been the case with some writers at the time. She really was a career writer um, at a time when it wasn't really the done thing for a married woman to have a career. So she she was an exception in that respect too. But when you look at some of the contemporaries that were writing around the same time as her, some of them have stood the test of time and some have not. And so there are people like Robert Louis Stevenson and Conan Doyle who clearly have, but... A.J. Cronin, I would suggest, was another one who was absolutely massively popular back in the day, but maybe has fallen out of favour. So I don't know why that should be, that some some have endured and some have not from that period. It's all the more strange to me because Annie S. One was a brand. Her name was used yes. not just by us, but across um, other publishers as well to sell their wares. Mm-hmm. She And she understood that and she understood her own worth. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who knew... What she was, you know, she would make sure she got paid yeah. what she was worth. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that as well. <laughs> but, yeah, no. Um, and her impact. I did promise to tell you about the impact mm. of this story. So I'm excited about the fact that I'm getting to talk about sales figures. <laughs> so um, I wanted to know what the impact of an NES one story was in the People's Friend back in the day. Um, so I went and looked at the sales ledgers, and this is a book that runs from 1923, apparently up to 1932. Now, The People's Friend, you'll be very pleased to hear, was doing cracking trade. It was still and is one of DCT's top performers. You're selling double my weekly, don't tell them that (laughs) um, at the time. But interestingly, the three weeks before this story were the lowest performing weeks in that period. Now, I'm not going to give you the exact figures. They were still very healthy, but it was very noticeable well, I can give you, I'll give you the figures. Go for it. <laughs> <clears throat> On the 3rd of March, 1923, it is noted that People's Friends sold 269,268 copies. On the 10th of March, the following week, the week that the Maid of the Isles and 600 Handy Hints comes out, 
I'll mention that as well, one of the giveaways. That figure goes up to 307,503. Wow. That, if my arithmetic is right, is a bump of 38,000 copies. Fantastic. Now, if you go through those ledgers, what you'll see is every time there's a cover mount, and it's one of the, usually one of the Aunt Kate's things around about that time, that accounts for about 5,000. That's nowhere near. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that is remarkable. And those figures remain re reasonably stable from that point yeah. on. They build wow. out, they build from that point. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. Yeah. She was box office gold, wasn't she? She mm -hmm. wasn't just box office gold. I'll tell you something else. The legacy <laughs> of this thing goes wow. on. Not only did, did this bump up the, the sales figures around about this period, not only did she then have a, a sequel in the works, which came out, I think, I think it was November that year and ran through roughly to about April. There was another after effect. Well, I'm going to say it's an after effect. I, I wasn't there at the time, but it would seem to me um, that this is a, a fairly obvious cause and effect. So 17th of March, 1924. And this is from George Watson. My dear Mrs. Burnett Smith, it has been suggested that we should issue a special Christmas number which would consist of some 140 pages bound in an attractive crash surface paper and, if possible, fastened at the back with a coloured ribbon which would match the tone of the cover. The contents would consist of short stories by well-known authors and would lead off with a story by your good self. This story would require to be about 15,000 words in length. In the title of this all-story annual, we would like to use your name in some form. Say as follows. Annie S1's All Story Annual or Annie S1 Christmas Story Book. The exact wording of the title could, however, be decided later between us. What we are wondering at the moment is how you would view such a proposal. So, I would say that in, in terms of journalism, you're only as good as your last story, right? Mm -hmm. And if your last story is a bit of a blockbuster, which has accounted for this sort of spike in sales and then has then spawned a sequel, I think that might have been in the forefront <laughs> of their mind when they decided to make the annuals. Yeah. But really what you've just read there is the birth of the People's Friend Annual. It is. Yeah. That, it is. And it was off the back, pretty it, much off the back. I would argue, I mean, I, like I say, I wasn't there. Maybe this was something that had been in the air for a while, but mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I don't think you're not going to back yeah. a... a a loser, basically, no. you know, in mm -hmm. effect. I mean, this is that this has happened there and then, um, I would say. And the fact that they've gone with yeah. with Annie's name and rather than the people's friend says a lot. Yeah, yeah. Says a lot she was story. clearly a massive draw. And we've seen those annuals, the Annie S1 annuals and in the archives. Beautiful. They're beautiful, aren't they? The yeah. artwork on them. The artwork, the way they're put together, yeah, the ribbons, which are still there. The are oh my there. goodness. Will I hit you with some more figures? Would oh, you care for some please, more figures? Oh. More figures. <laughs> okay. Um, well, much to my surprise, um, there were only 50,000 of this first annual sold, uh, or sorry, published. Of that, 49,698 were sold. <laughs> From the list that I've seen, there was an extensive list of gratis copies. Uh -huh. And those yeah. were obviously all the managers mm -hmm. and uh, editors, and including DC Thompson himself yes. around the company and various other places. 
So um, if I've got this right, there were roughly 202 returned, <laughs> most of which I think we have in the archive. That's less <laughs> than 0.4%. That is outrageous. I know. That is phenomenal sales efficiency. Yeah. The circulation <laughs> team today would kill for that sales efficiency. We should cry in if you went and read that to them. <laughs> the, the other stat which I really love is uh, they had the length of the story and what they were going to pay them. And I, I can't make it out. Is it, it might have been two guineas. They just scored this out and made it four guineas. She gets sixty pounds for this, plus twenty one pounds for use of her name, plus whatever else that she got for the story she published under David Lyle, <laughs> which went into the same annual. Now, this is her other pseudonym. David Lyle gets one guinea per word, which I thought was brilliant. But the fact that S <laughs> one is getting four when you've got likes of GG Bell on one. I mean, GG Bell was a huge mm -hmm. name back then. Uh, George Goodchild, two and a half. Couldn't just rounded that up for God. He, he, was, he was another well-known writer. So I just think this is incredible. Agnes Mitchell as well. She's only on two guineas. Mm -hmm. So I like to think that it scored out because they'd have set out a price and should have gone. She went, Absolutely no. not. <laughs> <laughs> up those rates. Thank I you very much. I think she would have done. Yeah. Don't think she was afraid to stand up for herself. No, definitely not. So that eighty-one pounds in nineteen twenty-three is roughly about nearly five, five and a half thousand today. Oh, yeah. which, which I mean. You know, maybe that doesn't sound an awful lot, but when you consider how much else that she was producing yeah. at the time, um, two serials mm -hmm. a year, not unknown for mm -hmm. Annie S1, plus the odd editorial piece, plus whatever was going on in the library, mm -hmm. and that was just us, with us. Yes. So, uh, you know, a remarkable the editors woman. must have been laughing because if, like you say, if ever the numbers were down, they were just like, right, <laughs> Annie S1, on, on you go, <laughs> get the name on it. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and if all else fails, we've got another annual coming out. So, yeah, <laughs> um, and they they did they continue to do good numbers. That's a very interesting insight. That's fantastic. It certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I still maintain that she should be better remembered today than she is, um, and I I haven't changed that opinion from reading A Maid of the Isles. In fact, if anything, it strengthened it because I think it really shows her at the peak of her storytelling powers I think um, it is a story that would be just as popular today as it was back in 1923 I think Jackie you've you've come to it fresh and you're enjoying it aren't you? Yeah I was, was going to say I, I wouldn't have thought it would have been my cup of tea but I started reading it and like you say it's still very applicable still very accessible mm -hmm. I assumed it would be kind of harder language older language but it really wasn't it was really it's really straightforward to read there's some turns of phrases and there's probably a lot mo most of them for me are probably scots stuff that i don't understand Sorry. um <laughs> no offense no offense um but yeah I'm, I'm really enjoying it it's very very gripping and so it definitely lasts the test of time but i think that's it i think it's that's the art of the storyteller it's not necessarily about I know this, this is going to sound really stupid, but it's not about the words as such. It's about how they put the story together and how they portray everything that just makes it accessible, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. down the years. It's not just something that stands up in their own time. It's a it's a vibe and a feeling mm -hmm. of characters and yeah, everything. Yeah. If you've got characters that you can still relate to and everything, then that's half the battle. Definitely. And Margaret McKinnon, the, the rebellious... She's very independent, she's very no-nonsense, she doesn't want anything to do with the life her mum's planned out for, yeah. for her marriage and, and all that kind of thing, which, you know, is is really fun to see. And am I right in saying Annie was quite big in 
like the suffra suffrage movement and things like that. I think so, she was, yeah. Yes, she was. Um, yeah. Yeah, so she, she was a suffragist and she also stood for parliament. Yeah. Um, but didn't get elected. And one of my favourite stories about that is that apparently um, when it was announced that she was going to stand for parliament, and I think she stood, she stood for the Liberal Party, although she was a supporter of Scottish nationalism for a while mm -hmm. as well. But um, People's Friend readers started a campaign to not have her elected because they didn't want her to stop writing stories for the friend. <laughs> I don't think they could have stopped her writing stories. I think she could have sat in Parliament they typing. Were, they were worried that it would be too much of a distraction from her writing and she wouldn't be able to keep up the output <laughs> of stories. So <laughs> There's one, one nice little um, detail about Annie as well that... Um, came to light last year and we actually did a feature in the magazine about it but during our 150th anniversary celebrations we we did a lot of um, research into Annie and also celebrating of Annie as well in the magazine and uh, somebody read that um, when we did it in 2019 and got in touch to say that she was a great niece of Annie's um, and still alive today and uh, shared some information about Annie's life and uh, on the back of that, um, a counsellor in Fife in a place called Star actually read, um, read the article, realised that Annie had lived in Star for a while and written at least one of her books there. And uh, the upshot is that they've named a street in Star after oh, her. So we now have Annie S. Swan Street as of last year. So really lovely to see her getting a bit of recognition yeah. at last. Yeah, so I guess one of the things I wanted to ask is why did we, we obviously got, we've had three of the classics collections so far. Um, why did we choose this one as our next classics collection? Well, we chose this one because the previous Annie uh, story that we published in the classics collection, The Inheritance, was so popular. And it was the first time Annie had been back in print for a very, very long time. So... A lot of people um, who love The People's Friend and whose mothers have loved The People's Friend knew about Annie from hearing their mothers and their grandmothers talking about her, but hadn't read any of her stories themselves. So when we published The Inheritance, they loved it. That was a cracker, actually. It was really I really excellent. enjoyed that one. So we thought, well, let's let's go back and, and find more. We've got over 200 Annie stories in our archive, so let's, let's bring another one out into the light. And uh, at the time we had chosen The Inheritance, we had had two to choose between. One was The Inheritance, one was A Maid of the Isles. So we thought, well, let's let's go with A Maid, a Maid of the Isles, which um, is also a fantastic story. Mm -hmm. so, so that was why it's really just... And quite a, different as well, isn't yeah. it? It shows her versatility yeah. because The Inheritance is very much a Dundee story and it's all about a family um, dynamic. So this one is very different. This is far more... Adventure based, I would mm. say. Yeah, more drama about mm -hmm. this one. So I think she just deserves to be read more. And if nobody else is going to do anything about that, then we are. Yes. yes. <laughs> Especially at a time when I think there's a lot of move, uh, big push in schools to talk about Scots. Yes. And read Scots. Yeah. Yes. And she does it justice. She does. So. And in a way that's very accessible. It is. I, I, I think it is. I mean, I think sometimes if you go back to late 19th century, early 20th century, writing it can take a while to just to get that adjust your mindset mm -hmm. to, to what they were saying and why and, and the way they spoke but this isn't this wasn't no. like that no. at all it was it was very instant mm -hmm. so 99 years later and it's still Annie S Swan's name that is pulling in the numbers so usually this is a part of the podcast where we would go around and rate the story and talk about whether we would republish it I mean we already have republished it so that kind of <laughs> says as much as you need to know um do you dare try to rate it? Should I mean, 
Uh, Barry's nodding. Yeah. I'm going to rate Give this. me a punch it. 307,503 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the only rating you need. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in a league of its own, really, isn't it? So... Yeah, for me, it's a it is a ten out of ten. I think for me, and I have been notorious for giving really low marks all the way through <laughs> this series. But um, she's just people's friend royalty. I can't give her less than ten no. out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have we wouldn't have republished it, would we? No, that wouldn't look very good if oh, I no. said it's only a three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Give it nine point nine because of those typos. They were not meant to be there. They're not in the original the text. The sky accent is a typo. So there were typos in the original text, which I didn't notice till I was much further on with it, and I thought, and then I went back and I thought, wait a minute, and they'd spelt McLeod two different ways. Oh, yes, MCA. and I think because it would have been hot metal mm-hmm. and yeah. whatever. So the first the first couple of episodes, it was McLeod just MC. And then by the time we got on a bit, it was MAC. So who, who, what have you made them? MAC, because it would have been on Sky, wouldn't but it? But I can imagine that they would have looked at that as a correction and thought, well, actually, that's not worth the time and expense yeah. to change that, yeah. I would think. If they'd even noticed at that early yeah. stage. Yeah. But we've not heard Judy's rating. Um, I'll give her an eight. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I haven't finished yet, so I have to finish the whole thing first before I give it yeah. my oh, final word. I'm, I'm very... Oh, dear. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very enamoured, though. Very yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very good read. It's I will a... probably read this, the rest of it, in sort of one sitting mm-hmm. tonight when I'm supposed to be packing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's distracting me from, from life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, right, well, I think that wraps us up for our final episode of season two, which is incredibly exciting. Thank you to Angela for narrating our first two chapters and to Judy and Barry for joining us for the discussion and to you for listening. This was our final episode of the season, so we'll take a bit of a hiatus, but we'll be back soon with a new sound and new stories. If you enjoyed the sound of A Made of the Isles, there'll be a link to check out our classics collection in the description. So all that's left for me to say is until this week group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe on your podcast app today so you don't miss out on season three and head back to our previous episodes for more from the friend archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get the People's Friend magazine, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for £6, available until June 30th, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back! There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend